Hello and welcome to this very special edition of the IPA's Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. Today's podcast is a special episode uh, which relates to a live recording that we did at the Friedman Conference in late May, which is the annual conference of the Australian Libertarian Society and the Australian Taxpayers Association. I'm joined in the studio by Chris Berg, who was also there. (laughs) Good morning, Scott. I was also at this live podcast. Yes, and we will be uh, rolling to the audio of that in just a moment. Unfortunately, the first couple of minutes of the audio weren't great. So we're, uh, we're introducing it, and then we'll go live. You'll be able to hear me, Scott Hargroves, editor of the IPA Review, who was MC for the day. Also, Chris Berg from RMIT University. Renee Gorman, who's the IPA's National Manager of Generation Liberty. And, of course, John Roskam, our esteemed Executive Director. So it transpires that my microphone may not have been turned on, which is probably my fault. But what I want to do is, for the benefit of the conversation and for the benefit of this special episode of the podcast, just give you a brief idea of what I was talking about because we end up referring to it a fair bit during the live discussion. Well, of the audience. well you do. Well, I do, <laughs> as I said. Um, uh, so we were asked, really, what is the future of – how do we see the future of liberty in – 2050. So, um, and I was asked, how do I think about that? And my argument is, is this, Scott and audience. We're entering um, a couple of decades of really massive changes in the economy because of the technological changes that, that they've been going for a couple of decades, but they've gone, um, they've accelerated really significantly quite recently. Um, now we're talking, uh, and you know, we can see that, we can see that in the um, discussions that we're having about um, Facebook, for instance. Facebook really only came into existence as a major political force in the last couple of years, but it's to the, but it is a political force to the extent that we talk about it in the context of US presidential elections, fake news, it just infuses absolutely everything um, that we do nowadays and it's that's become a political issue but multiply that that's just social media and social media is just a sort of simple communications technology multiply that across the changes that we're seeing in artificial intelligence in machine learning in internet of things in um uh, in blockchain the area that we of course study at rmit so we're going to have a lot of changes now i think that's going to mean we need a lot of regulatory reform and we're going to be talking about how we regulate and how we govern these technologies for the ensuing decades. But also, I'm going to make a stronger claim, as I made the stronger claim at the live podcast, um, that these technologies are going to make us freer. I think they're going to help us achieve the values of individual liberty that we, uh, certainly the IPA and the free market movement in Australia and the people at the Friedman Conference um, are interested in. Because even though I think we're going to see the growth in the state over the next couple of decades, I think we're going to see growth in regulation. I think we're going to see growth in technologies that allow us to avoid that. So I think governments are going to be bigger in 2050 and there'll be more regulation, but it'll be easier for us to avoid that and we'll be in a vastly different and I think more exciting environment. So a terif- terrific scene setter from Chris Berg there and to uh, balance it up, I then threw to John Roskam, uh, who I pointed out in, in, a, in a previous life had done lectures on Plato. So I, I said to John, uh, tell us about freedom um, and it's in, as a as an ideal, as an enduring value. And uh, so even while the world's changing, there's something 
that is a, a concept of freedom that maybe doesn't change so much. John, I said, tell us something about that. And this is where we do pick up the audio from the Friedman Conference recorded live before a very, very large audience. Let's roll the tape. Scott is right. Human freedom, human flourishing, the idea to aspire to something better than what you already have um, is, I would argue, innately human. I'd endorse Chris's view that technology is going to make us more free, not less. And I think Chris's analysis is absolutely right, which is why um, the government and governments understand this. So I think we face uh, governments using technology uh, against us, whether it is a cashless economy, which gives the, uh, the state uh, untrammeled power over what we do and uh, where we can spend our money and how we control capital, um, whether it is um, data regulation and the control of our metadata, um, this has the potential to dramatically reduce our freedom. But as Chris said, it's exciting that we can avoid uh, the state using technology. Um, more broadly, I think we have to conceive of freedom differently. Traditionally, those of us on the centre-right, liberal, conservative, libertarian, have defined freedom in narrowly economic terms uh, and simply how much, government, how much tax does the government take. But as the great Nassim Taleb talks about, economically we're not that free. The government controls the price of money, the price of energy. The single most important thing we have to contribute to society, arguably, is our labour, which the government controls the price of. So we need to reconceive of freedom. I think there's a, a risk that we'll be able to do more, but talk about it less. Um, but on the other hand, while I'm optimistic about technology, I'm also optimistic that the threats to freedom that we see now are going to have to force us to reconceive of freedom and engage in the debate. Um, I've been at the IPA now 13, 14 years. I had never, ever contemplated um, that the IPA uh, would have to be debating why there should not be press censorship, for example. Um, but I'm optimistic about freedom, but I think freedom, as we conceive it, will be quite different in 2050. Indeed. Now, Renee, you're, uh, at least until the gala dinner, I, I suspect, the, uh, the reigning uh, young activist uh, awarded last year at this uh, same... Uh, Australian Young Activist of the Year, awarded last year at this same conference. Um, what are the battles ahead for you as you look ahead to making sure that uh, we are still free in 2050? I will make one small correction there. It wasn't young activists, it was just activists. So I beat the old, <laughs> I beat the old people too. An important too, correction. Okay? Um, You're not into identity politics. <laughs> no. So I'm really, really positive about the future because... I work on the ground level with, with young people. I'm out on campuses every day, talking with people, watching students change their minds, watching students embrace freedom. And I think that young people get a bit of a bad rap these days. I don't, I think it comes from a lot of, um, you know, every generation thinks the generation underneath them is, is lazy and, and not as good as them. And I, I, I think you always need to take it with a grain of salt. Um, but going back to Chris's point about how these kind of technologies are freeing us as we go into the future, I was listening to this rather beautiful explanation of what the market is and what the exchange of ideas is and, it's, and what we can do as we move into the future. And to put a description on it, it's kind of like when you first meet a person and you start getting really interested in them 
and say it could be romantic or it could be a friendship and you have those nights where you sit on the couch for two hours and you have a conversation that changes your life or changes the way you think about things. And the big part of that conversation is not that you just exchanged ideas back and forth, but those ideas came together and created something new. And what the state and the government is, is really someone who's trying to interrupt that conversation, trying to get involved. I, I don't think I would say it's a person buddy in because I think it's more inhuman. It's more like a dinosaur buddy in. Uh, so right now, technology is getting to the point to make sure that that conversation does not get interrupted and that we can work together and come together and advance into the future with more freedom for everyone. I mean, and just on the technology, and many of you in this room have heard me talk about it before, without technology there would be no Jordan Peterson. Uh, there'd be no PewDiePie and his 97 million subscribers. Um, technology is going to disintermediate uh, not just the corporate world as it's doing, but education, health, and it will disintermediate the state. Yeah, I totally agree with that. You know, this generation has not lost its curiosity, so if the universities are not going to provide the content that students want, they have this technology at the tips of their fingers right now so they can find these ideas themselves. And there's not much the state can do to stop that. You know, they've tried a little bit. We are seeing some censorship. But it's, you know, we're thinking that the government's going to use this technology against us, but... I don't think bureaucrats are that efficient. I don't think they're going to be able to keep up with it. Technology is continually getting better. It's not getting better like this. It's getting better like that. And I don't think the government's going to be able to keep up. And uh, for those listening on the podcast, uh, Renee's hand just went from horizontal <laughs> through to something asymptotic. Uh, and actually, just uh, John, I just want to pick up on that because uh, you've touched... Uh, this change process affects all institutions, but you touched on universities. We're in a university now... But I mean, I'm surprised they've let us in. It's UTS. <laughs> We're 500 metres from the ABC studios. <laughs> so the question: Will it still be? Will it still be here in uh, in 30 years' time? Is the question in this form? Universities? Yes. No, like, no. I think, um, and and this is the the challenge about freedom. Um, at at one level, let's say if you're conservative inclined. Um, you would be very reluctant to intervene in civil society to promote freedom. That is absolutely antithetical to every conservative Burkean value. But when the opponents of freedom are state-funded, state-sponsored, state-regulated, state-controlled, it is imperative that anyone believing in freedom must understand our culture and must get involved in that debate. The very worst thing for a libertarian to do is to be saying, well, look, I think the government should or should not fund the ABC. Um, but that is the debate we must have, and it is a debate about culture that the political parties, by and large, uh, with the exception of the minor political parties like the LDP or the Australian Conservatives, um, have not been willing to engage. And, and uh, we're talking about technology. Technology is going to disintermediate political parties too. To, to pick up on the university thing, because I think that's that's a really interesting part, and 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 the IPA and and lots of people on the centre right have been interested in the the importance of freedom of speech on campus. Um, what what I think has been slightly, uh, which is which is the right thing to be talking about, to be to be clear. But what I think Phew. has been slightly, it's okay, John. It's okay, Renee. Everybody's doing very well. Um, uh, <laughs> um, uh, but what I think part of that discussion misses is. Um, 
the way that the university sector is changing and will change. So uh, I, I, I'm a professional academic and professional academics like to talk, whenever they hear threats to the university sector, they always say, well, it's an 800-year-old institution. So, you know, what, what can you do? It hasn't been killed before. It's not going to be killed in the future. But the university sector is not what it was 800 years ago. It's not even what it was 50 years ago because we've seen massive social changes around the mass education, the fact that everyone has to get a degree now, just the, the huge changes that have occurred because of public policy choices. And what we're now having is this strange modern institution, very corporatized and marketized, which I like, of course, but, um, but also handing out medieval certifications, the, the Bachelor of Arts or, or a Doctor of Philosophy or all these, all these quite old traditional certifications that don't really fit the modern world very well. So then we're seeing these, you know, other people are inventing new certifications. They're inventing new ways to actually hand over genuine skills-based education rather than, rather than what we, we get now, which is a sort of turn up for three years and hopefully, you know, that, that will tell employers something about you in the future. So I think the sector is massively ripe for change. It's ripe for radical entrepreneurial energy. And that entrepreneurial energy should be focused at making sure universities actually provide the workplace with um, the skills that the workplace, uh, workplaces demand and providing that liberal education that has been lost. Yeah, see, I'm going to argue with that. I don't think universities should have anything to do with providing skills to <laughs> employers that workers want. Employers can buy that. No, that's right. Uh, and and employers... Uh, no, no, so uh, employers can buy that, but yeah. there will be a service provided, presumably, by um, people willing to sell that service yeah, I mean, I, for that skill. I, I the, isn't, the problem, isn't the problem then... And this is just going to be John and I fighting for an hour, to be clear. Um, <laughs> so just get ready for that. I'll try and uh, help. <laughs> um, it, is it, isn't the problem that we... If you assume that there is this connection between a liberal education and workplace um, uh, training, then that sort of implies government. And that implies that the government needs to fund us to read Plato. We'll get back to freedom in 2050. But before <laughs> I say that, you have gone completely native uh, as, a, as an academic. Um, there's no role for a university. There's the role for individuals to come together. There's the role for corporations to come together and fund things. Um, I did a podcast not unlike this um, with the then uh, Vice-Chancellor of Melbourne University, Glenn Davis, and he was shocked when I said that the state should not mandate anything special about a university or a school, and when I said uh, that a cure for cancer might as likely be found in um, uh, the garage of someone who's been pottering around with chemicals for 50 years as in a university lab, um, he nearly threw the microphone at me. Um, so, again, you know, universities and education is one small dimension of, of freedom, but if we do anything about freedom, it is to bring down the state-sanctioned, mandated restrictions on us forming a university, on me being a hairdresser, on me working at the wage that I want to work at, and someone choosing to work at the wage they want to work at. Now, that is a libertarian call to arms. Renee... Uh, yes, um, I may be putting myself out, as, out of a job because I do generally work on university campuses, but I am going to agree that I don't think they have a place in the future. Uh, I'm going to use another weird, weird example again, um, but 
there is this kind of thought or this kind of dire thought that this generation, oh, you know, they don't read, they're not as smart as us, you know, they're, you know, not as great as the generation before. But what I'm seeing in a lot of young people is really specific skills and people specialising. And I think that's the future. Like, the national curriculum, the fact that everyone in Australia learns exactly the same thing, I think is completely bonkers. How are we going to build a better world when we all learn the same stuff? And again, this kind of uh, access to information that technology is bringing us is going to help us with that. So a weird example is I was listening to a podcast about magicians and, and magic. And this used to be something that um, it was so hard to find out how to do. And they've found in the last 20 years, magic has just absolutely gone crazy. And they're meeting eight-year-old kids who are better than the 70-year-old professionals. And it's because they can go online and get easy access to this information. So I just think that that's what we're going to see more and more of, of people getting more specific and more highly skilled in, in specific areas. No, that's a, that's a great idea. We might go to the floor now. We have um, uh, Boston and Chris uh, who have microphones, so put your hand up if you'd like to ask a question um, as close to the theme as possible. Um, if you'd like to identify yourself, please do so, but if you work for a university and you're not sure you can, you can, that's okay too. Um, we have a hand up over here, Boston. Thank you. Um, hi, my name's Alyssa and I'm here with ManCal. And I have a question with regard to the statement that the government will be bigger in the future with more regulations, but will also have more capacity to avoid them. Like, how exactly do you see that happening in, in that regard and in our capacity to avoid that as well? Yeah, so what I str very strongly see is two trends that diverge away from each other. So um, it's unclear to me how we would shrink the government from where we are right now. I think the political economy of government growth suggests that the government is going to keep growing at the same time. But what the government does is going to be less effective. It's actually going to be less effective at controlling, uh, at, at controlling the society it purports to govern. Just think about freedom of speech in that specific area. Uh, freedom of speech is a nice example. So um, all the trends seem to suggest that there's going to be more restrictions on freedom of speech down the track. I think... Um, uh, and, and governments seem to be responding that way. I don't see how that's going to change. But the capacity for them to prevent us from speaking about certain topics is, 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 is going to be entirely, almost entirely absent. So it is almost entirely absent now. If you want to um, read or say things about any topic, regardless of whether that's legal or illegal, you can go on to websites on, uh, on the very public social media or you can... Um, or, or the dark web or, or something like that. It's, it's really hard for the government to control what we say and, um, and, and read. Now, my argument is also that's going to start applying to other areas as well. So um, in an environment in which code, the, the, the you know, physical, uh, sorry, I should say, um, uh, computer software code and the economy become increasingly intertwined the economy becomes more and more global, it becomes digital, we're transacting with each other across the world every day. Governments aren't really able to control that or they, it's going to be harder and harder for them to do so. So I think we're going to be more free in reality though, on paper, it'll look like legislation and regulation is growing. That's a really new place for us to be as a, as a, as a classical liberal or conservative or libertarian movement and it's, and it's really exciting, I think. 
We have a question down here, Boston. David. Oh, sorry, I've just outed you. You don't work for a university? You're not worried about being identified? Um, I've got uh, two questions. One, that um, they believe that by 20, 2030, uh, most of Americans will be conservative. The um, new generation of liberals would have uh, bred themselves out because they're not having children, and conservative people tend to have more families. The larger the family is, the more conservative it will be. And the other one is that globalisation, I do believe, is going to come to an end, like um, with the US Navy withdrawing from the world's seas and um, the way that petroleum is and all that sort of stuff, we won't have this globalisation. It's coming to an end. Like this is Peter Zeehan who says this. I was just wondering if you think that's going to be part of the future where about this net, this um, connection that you're talking about, I don't think it's going to last too long. Um, uh, I haven't heard the conservative upbreeding story. That's like a conservative version of idiocracy, um, which is... Uh, uh, and, and that's really interesting. Um, so, uh, But I can't address it directly. I, I disagree very strongly with the globalisation story, though, um, because we've seen so much of economic wealth move onto digital, non-territorial spaces. It's not to say that um, uh, it won't be important for physical goods like petroleum and so forth, that they will remain an important part of the economy. But we are now interacting, communicating, um, making exchanges with people in a much broader space than we were even 10 or 20 years ago. So I just don't see that trend happening. There is certainly right now a, um, a, a, a anti-globalization backlash on both the left and the right. Um, I'm, uh, as a pro-globalization person, I'm optimistic that that is a, that is a temporary um, thing, but I, but I think all the trends otherwise that aren't just political trends point towards deeper and further globalisation down the track. Um, the nature of family formation and conservatism is interesting and of course it was only a few years ago that uh, the Democrats were assured of a majority in the Senate and the House in the U US uh, because of demographic, demographic trends that they thought favoured them. Um, I'm sceptical about all those arguments. No, I'm not a uh, I'm not a Marxist. Nothing is inevitable except the growth of government. Um, I think what, what we're suffering from worldwide, and I say suffer deliberately because it's made conservatives, liberals and libertarians lazy, is certainly in Australia 30 years of uninter uninterrupted economic growth. Um, and I think that has led us to assume a whole bunch of things that we can spend any amount of money without consequences and we will always be able to afford it. We can only ever contemplate the future in the time and space we are in right now. Right now, we are comfortable with the government increasingly regulating our lives. We haven't yet seen a massive example of government failure, although I would say the GFC is such one example, but it's an argument that the centre-right have at the moment comprehensively lost. You can argue, as you know, till you're blue in the face that it was... Bush and Clinton that caused the GFC uh, and you'll get absolutely no purchase in, in the public debate. I actually don't think it's family formation, not necessarily religion, not necessary, necessarily economic circumstances. It's the innate desire for aspiration and for freedom and our place in the world and our status in society or as an identity member group might vary how we see that freedom, but I don't think it's ever going to go away and if we rely on demographic trends to secure our freedom then we are going to be on the wrong side of history. 
I've got a question for Renee, which I think is, is linked because one another trend that we've seen has been the growth of identity politics and particularly important on on campus. Uh, is, is it inevitable that, like the state, it will just continue to grow and consume more and more areas of our intellectual life? Is that what you see over, between now and 2050? Um, not from the response that I'm seeing from young people on campus. So I don't think identity politics has a very long lifespan simply because mostly it doesn't make much sense. Um, there's so many different forms of identity. There's so many overlapping things. So where you put yourself on that victim totem pole is, is so arbitrary that I don't think it can, it, it can last very long. And also you have to think that young people are just going to continue to accept um, pretty much an oppression of them you know, say if you're a white male, that you just have to sit back, you have to, you know, give other space for people who are less privileged than you. And I think we're also getting a backlash from young women, um, especially uh, who I talk to, who say, this is, this is so patronising to say that, um, you know, the, the men in my class need to be quiet because I'm such a fragile little flower that if they speak... I'm going to feel intimidated. And I don't think that's how you empower women for the next generation. And I just don't think it's a, a lasting ideology. I think it's going to get worse before it gets better, but I do think it's going to die and a diet quite a painful death. I mean, it's not sustainable because the intersectionality of identity politics has so many different axes at any one time that it cannot last. Um, and again, when we're talking about freedom, um, I upset my friends on the left when I say, you know, when did the left stop believing that we were all the same regardless of our skin colour? When did the left stop believing that we all get the same freedoms? Um, and I think Renee is right, which is every action has a reaction. What I actually fear in 30 years' time is a reaction against the freedom that's about to come in reaction to what's just happened for the last 20 years. <laughs> Sorry, just to, um, unpack that a bit. <laughs> if you could diagram that out for us, that'd be really helpful. No, I, I think... I, I, I agree that intersectionality or identity politics and intersectionality being um, one of the follow-throughs of that basic framework of thinking about the world it will never inherently eat itself because the intersectionality story is... Um, uh, it's not just about race or gender or sexuality. It's w combinations of those. It's, Does everyone then, know what intersectionality is? Do you want to yeah, give so, us a so intersect 15 minutes? 15 summary? minutes, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no, so again, get out the whiteboard, everyone. Um, no, so You're the academic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, they're also mean to me. Um, intersectionality You've is the... left the IPA. <laughs> intersectionality is the story that... Um, so it's not just about race or gender. You can you can have combinations of these categories that, when added together, have a multiplicative multiplicative effect. So um, if if you're um, of a certain race and you're also female, then that is um, worse on the identity politics scale, or more you've 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 suffered more oppression and so forth. Now, why I think this will eat itself is because what we're eventually talking about is just individual characteristics and. You know, some people grew up poor, some people um, are from certain classes or, or, or of a certain racial background.
backgrounds or anything like that. And eventually you end up with an individual. And we start ranking each other on individuals. Well, from a public policy perspective, we have to start treating ourselves as everyone has individual and particular circumstances. Now, that is precisely the liberal claim the libertarian conservative claim that we all have really specific backgrounds, we, we all have really specific origins, and we have to figure out a way to live together. So intersectionality, I think, has within it, or identity politics has within it, it the source of its own um, destruction, or, or at least its own petering out. And, and so I'm not I'm kind of happy when people start just adding oppression uh, characteristics. On and and when like I say that. it's unsustainable, exactly as Chris says, if we apply the intersectionality of identity politics, we will end up with 25 million different characteristics of 25 million different Australians. The only way to actually deal with 25 million different Australians as individuals is to treat them as close as possible to the same, not as different. But individualism has a long history. Oh, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> um, has a has a long history in our in our culture, but uh, sort of intellectually, it, it's been attacked. So, can can you really mean? How do we get back to that? Yeah, but I, but this is the difference of how I think of myself as one of twenty five million individuals, and how the state treats me. We are all absolutely different, and that is the power of freedom of thought and freedom of religion for me to think of myself as an individual and to be treated as an individual but when it comes to the state and the collective that is different because we all have to be treated the same to allow ourselves to be special. Berg, I just want to go back to... Uh, <laughs> sorry, Dr Berg. You can call me Chris now. Yeah, Chris. Um, Doctor. In, in your op optimistic... <laughs> Uh, we've talked about the size of government, but, of course, but the, it's, it's not just size in terms of uh, GDP and taxes and revenue. It's also the, you know, the incredible growth of the administrative state, the regulatory state, uh, the, the deep state, um, the shadow state. All, you know, the, there's uh, all sorts of ways that aren't fiscal that the, the state can actually interfere in, in your life. Uh, doesn't that actually have to be tackled directly if we're going to see the, the upside of the sort of scenario that you've been painting? That's right. And this is what I think is the most concerning trend. It's not the growth of the state in, in taxation terms or even necessarily legislative terms. It's the growth of the state in sort of tedious bureaucratic authority terms. Um, and that's really hard to roll back. And, and um, uh, the IPA's been working on a lot of models by which we could roll it back, you know, one in, one out, regulatory policies and, and so forth. But unfortunately, in order to do any rollback of the state, you actually need that, that thing that we all wish we had but never seems to turn up, which is political leadership. And you actually need governments to commit to rolling back policy by policy, regulation by regulation, to do that very boring work of just chipping away at it. And historically that has been unfortunately quite rare. You could argue that it happened in the 1970s and 1980s. You've got regular, regulatory um, stagnation, if not reduction in some areas. It happened in the early 19th century in the United Kingdom. But, but by and large that's quite a quite a rare change. Now, what happens when you have too many of these regulations and you have too much of this bureaucratic control is that we become a very rigid economy. We, we don't adjust or the, the, the um, regulations don't adjust well to sudden shocks, whether that's 
economic shocks, whether that's technological shocks, big changes. We, we become stagnant and rigid. And that's what I'm... Re I think if I was to make the pessimistic case for 2050, I think that's what I would be most worried about. Just that build-up of... Um, uh, that, that web of regulation. And, and if I was pessimistic, I would say that the centre-right will keep on thinking of the size of government as just GDP um, collected by the state, um, which is something, of course, that the left has never made a mistake of. It's fantastic to see the great Simon Brini in the audience in the front row, and it was when Simon was at the IPA that he led our legal rights work, which understands that the size of government is also how many statutes were passed last year that reversed the onus of proof? Um, how many statutes were passed um, last year uh, that take away the right to silence? These are all the dimensions of the size of government as well, which we have to start to comprehend and understand and measure, because if you don't measure it, um, you don't manage it, and if you don't manage it, you're not going to cut it. And work being carried forward now by Morgan Big. Uh, you, sir, you have a question. Uh, hi. So, the Samdes Yari affair. I, oh, sorry, Joe Ascroft from New Zealand Taxpayers Union. The Samdes Yari affair from across the ditch looked to be symptomatic of a broader problem around foreign political interference in the Anglosphere. Do you think that's going to be an increased concern looking out to 2050? And if so, how do you think it will impact the citizen-state relationship? <laughs> Everybody, this is a Chris question. Um, no, that's a really that's a really interesting question. Um, uh, foreign political interference is definitely going to become um, more significant, um, insofar as because foreign political communication is now a global thing, and this conference is an in indication of how that can happen. So this is a um, this is both the Australian Freedman um, Conference and uh, an international taxpayers conference as well. Um, uh, now, to my mind, that's that's a really good thing, but that makes all politics is global politics now. Um, we've seen, you know, uh, the, the new nationalist movements are all working together. We've seen, obviously, the, the communists have always had this idea. Um, now, on the Sam Dasty affair, uh, affair specifically, it's fairly easy to prevent foreign money from entering a political system and the United States has done that very successfully and Australia is certainly moving in that direction too. So I don't know that we will see that many replications of precisely that. But but now we, but we're in an environment now where we have to think of Australian domestic discussions and debates in an international context and we have um, as part of international movements. I, I, I think that's no bad thing but in the geopolitical environment that we uh, at the moment, that's, that is a more complicated thing than we're used to. It's exactly as Chris said, it's a lot more complicated than people understand. And someone else in this room is Stuart Eaton. And when Stuart Eaton was at the IPA, he would go to Canberra with Gideon Rosner and he would explain or try to explain to politicians um, that many of their proposed restrictions on advertising spending, election spending, were not just contrary to free speech, but incoherent. So why is a foreign media company allowed to publish newspapers in Australia, but a foreign media company is not allowed to donate to a political party? I wanted to donate to the Ron Paul campaign. I couldn't. Um, um, John, I, I wanted to build on Joe's question, though. I mean, to be having this debate is also partly to, to be back and talking about actual nation states and, you know... 10 or 20 years ago, they were seen to be going the way of the dodo and, you know, we live in a globalised, internationalised world and 
communication was going to be free. But, you know, when, when Australia passes laws against foreign interference, it's really reasserting its, its oh, yeah, status I'm as a nation state. I'm a big state. fan of the nation state and I'd support Brexit, of course, Scotland leaving the UK and Catalonia um, disamalgamating from the rest of Spain. Um, but I would argue most of these foreign interference laws are absolutely incoherent. Why is a foreign company uh, that is has a residence... Um, and domicile overseas allowed to um, contribute to Australian political parties. When we talk about caps on donation spending, why uh, do political parties contemplate a cap on donation spending uh, but not a cap on the amount of time you spend on the telephone ringing up for a candidate? I think it's all or nothing. Um, and again, I've argued long and hard, especially with coalition MPs, uh, that if you pursue um, uh, caps on foreign donations, if you pursue caps on domestic spending, all you're going to be doing um, is empowering your opponents who do not have those caps, i.e. the trade union movement, the public sector and uh, government-owned media. So I've got to say I was relatively relaxed about the Dastiari affair. It wasn't a good look. Um, but I, I think there are other ways of combating so-called foreign interference, namely by putting what foreign agents or foreign companies might, countries might want to do to the ballot box. That's actually where we get to decide, not making these arbitrary rules about you can't donate money but you can donate time or vice versa. Um, I'd just like to pick up on a little point there about, you know, we've seen Brexit, there's talks about Wexit after the Queensland election... Um, well, the election, they're saying we should have Quexit. And I actually really, really like this conversation but to say, oh, as a state, we should be able to have self-determination and should not give in to the rest of the country because I think it is the first domino to fall for, wait, our state should be able to self-determine. Wait, our community should be able to self-determine. And then it's going to get to smaller and smaller groups. So I think it's a really positive conversation that we should keep going and we should be getting to smaller and smaller groups. So the nation state is important, but I think if we can make it smaller and smaller, it's going to mean that we are freer and freer. And I, I want to push back against the premise of your question. This is not at all the new rise of the nation state. This is a... Um, it, it, this is all gone. We are... The, these laws are in reaction to a globalisation that has never been more... A world that has never been more globalised. Um, uh, the idea that the Australian government can ban encryption or can affect the levels of encryption at a global level is, is obvious and unremitting nonsense. Yet, the, yet nonetheless, the Australian government passed that legislation. Hmm. Um, uh, the idea that the Australian government can do anything about what is said on Facebook is, again, unremitting nonsense. Yet I will point you to the legislation that claims to do so. Um, these are, these are you know, even in, in the United States, the um, idea that the United States government can do anything about um, uh, foreign political advertisements on these social media networks is unremitting nonsense. So this is a uh, what we are seeing is a sort of sad grasp of the nation state in the middle of a massive, sudden, dramatic, I think mostly exciting new era of globalization. Hmm. I think it's got a long way to run. We have another question down the back. 
Um, hi there. I had a couple of um, just very brief questions. Um, my name is Barclay. I work with the LNP headquarters in Brisbane, and there's been a few times um, throughout this year. Thank you, Queensland. Yep. Thanks very much. Yep. Well done. I, I think you need a clap. How thank good you. is Queensland? Thanks to you, Australia dodged a bullet. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, anyway, so um, having said that, I have been obstructed from attending my very own work um, on a few occasions this year because of climate change activists. And I'm just wondering, is there any way that we're able to draw the line on such demonstrations without impeding on their freedom of association and freedom of speech? That's kind of my first question. And the second question was, obviously, Israel Folau, everyone knows about it, everyone's spoken, ignores him about it. Um, but is it more of a libertarian thing to do to side with the rights of the company in terms of dismissing, uh, dismissing Falau, or is it more libertarian to side with Falau in his fight to retain his contract with uh, Rugby Australia? Well, let's, let's, which one do we want to start with? Climate? I'm going to have a go Activist? at Falau. We'll start yeah. with Falau. So, um, uh, look, that is the precise right way to frame the, the Israel Falau discussion. Um, so the way I think about it, and I'm not saying that everybody should necessarily think about it this way. The way I think about it is I'm really deeply uncomfortable with this trend of making people's personal views, um, uh, making them answer for that in a workplace context. I think that's a deeply illiberal trend. I think we should be aggressively and firmly against it when and wherever we can. However, I do not want to take that principle and also undermine Israel Folau's right to sign a contract that bans him from saying things like that. So uh, if the choice is, do, does he have the freedom to agree to things to make contracts with other firms, I think we absolutely should. But I might say to him, if, if he was to ask me, don't sign a contract that takes away your right to freedom of speech. Don't sign a contract that would punish you for sharing obviously deeply held values. So I think we actually have a social responsibility in, the free market movement, a social responsibility to point out to people that having liberal freedoms and protecting them in their workplaces is, is a really important thing to do. I would never get the state involved and I don't want the state to make those decisions for me. Um, we don't do it anymore, but at the IPA, I don't think we asked Renee, but I might have asked Chris this, uh, although he actually started work at the IPA before me. We used to ask a question um, of potential employees, should you be able to sell your kidney? Um, fortunately, most people said yes. Um, this is, uh, goes to Chris's point. Uh, should Israel Folau have the right to sell his right to silence to the ARU? Yes, he should. Should they have enforced it? No. That would be my argument. Um, in, I, I think if ever we are, if ever the state is going to stop exactly as Chris said, people signing such contracts, that will be highly problematic. And I'm aware that we're having this discussion without knowing what's actually um, in the contract. Uh, if a potential employee gives to a potential employer the control over what they do in their social life or private life off the field or outside of the workplace, that is their decision as difficult as it is. In relation to climate change protesters or any other sort of protesters, I do not think it is that hard. It is you protest but do not wreck my life. Do not let do not stop me going um, to work. I no protester has the right to stop anyone going to work. Uh, no protester has the right to um, stop traffic across the Harbour Bridge. Um, what we have is the problem of um, the police not enforcing the law and the police selectively enforcing the law. It's 
relatively easily fixed. Yes, the, the rule of law was another one of Simon's uh, projects, which is very important. We have another question. Um, hi, Bridget Poulton. Um, we've spoken a little bit about globalisation and the role of technology in um, enabling freedom. Are you able to um, talk a little bit about how that can help people in the developing world who um, have very little access to education um, and job opportunities and things like that? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think it's most exciting in the developing world. Um, so uh, some work that Darcy Allen um, and I are doing at RMIT is on um, uh, how we can use... So we, we study blockchain and how we can use technologies like blockchain to solve really basic development problems. And I'll, I'll give you the story briefly. So um, it, 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 by and large, most people on the centre-right on the free market um, uh, movement think that the reason that countries are poor is because of really bad institutions. They've got corrupt governments, they've got corrupt legal systems and all that sort of thing. And this is 100% right. This is exactly what's wrong in the developed world. But our response by and large at the moment is, well, then you should uh, stop being so corrupt, I guess. And we just leave them at that. And they, and they quite rightly look at us and say, well, what, what on earth are we supposed to do with that information? That's like, we know that there are corruption problems. What is exciting about this new suite of technologies is that we can use it to do some of the things that those corrupt institutions should have done for us better. So in the case of blockchain, we can use them to um, enhance, uh, to, to manage smart contracts rather than going to a corrupt judiciary and asking them to, do the con uh, to, to manage the contracts for us. In the freedom of speech case, rather than having to set up a newspaper that might be raided and the press is banned, we can actually communicate over the internet. Um, uh, people in the developed world can set up online systems and very, very hard to censor th systems. So I'm very excited by technology solving not problems that we have in Australia because we have it pretty good. Um, uh, there are some serious public policy challenges, but the countries that need these new technologies of freedom the most are the developing countries and that's where they are going to be most exciting. That's where they're going to be most challenging, but where they're most exciting. The single biggest vehicle for freedom in developing countries is this. And I'm holding up a this phone. This is a podcast, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and for those listening to the podcast, I'm holding up an iPhone XS. It's awesome. <laughs> yes, sir. Hi, uh, Damon Miles from ManCow. It's more directed to Chris uh, and uh, talking about our technology allowing us to basically subvert regulations. Do you think with the, um, the rising globalisation and multilateralism between um, countries that... While a single country itself can't um, impose a certain regulation or a certain law and reduce our freedoms that way, do you think that with the power of like multiple nations and these massive conglomerates that they could do something that a single nation couldn't? No. So um, uh, you don't just need multiple nations to ban a technology. You need all nations to ban a technology. And even if you got all nations to ban a technology, we have satellites that you would have to shoot down. And so, in the, again, in the blockchain space, people are working, at, um, working on interplanetary file systems so that you can store stuff in satellites. Um, this is a technology that exists right now. You can store the Bitcoin blockchain on a satellite. Now, you would need... The ultra cloud. The, the ultra cloud. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the interstellar cloud. Um, uh, and, and so I, I, I'm completely optimistic in that sense. It's very hard to get governments to cooperate with each other, and we obviously see this in the climate change, um, uh, climate change policy perspective. But, um, but as long as you've got one holdout or you've still got satellites... 
Um, these technologies are inevitable, they are uncontrollable, they are uncensorable, and they are all fantastic. Awesome. I think we have time for more applause. Thank we you have time for uh, one, one more question before I, do, I go back around our uh, panellists. Any more questions from the floor? No. Um, yes, we have a question down the back. Thank you, Boston. Uh, we've spoken a little bit about sort of uh, freedom in the virtual world. Uh, what about in the real world, about freedom in, uh, for people to access national parks? What's that going to be like in 2050? You know, the, the gates have been shut increasingly uh, often. Uh, will, it be, will, it, will they be open in 2050? They or? only will be open when they're privatised. <laughs> that is the only solution, quite seriously. We were actually talking about this in the, um, in the context of uh, post-humanism. Uh, in a, in a human-centred world, national parks are something that humans can enjoy. Um, but much of the agenda from the other side is saying, well, yeah, but now it's post-human. Post Bella de Brera has been uh, uh, looking at the various uh, publications and ARC proposals around post-humanism and interspecies justice. And uh, that actually... Uh, a priori reframes what a national park's even for. So before we can even get to an argument about whether you're actually allowed to drive into it, uh, it's like, who's it for? And, and the real point... I mean, we, we laugh at post-humanism and it's uh, fun and it's ridiculous, but it has huge consequences. The co one of the consequences is, as you'd know very well, that uh, there's now the debate that um, parks, nat national parks, should not have any humans in them, ever. So um, if I get the grips of what you and Scott are saying is that we shouldn't give wombats the vote? <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. Uh, there was actually a, a university um, paper released where they said that we need to get animals involved in the democratic process. So I, I don't know what that really means. <laughs> Very good. Um, John, I'll come back to you. Any, any closing thoughts on what freedom looks like in 2050 and, and, and how you are feeling about that trajectory? Oh, only I think this has been a great discussion. I'm optimistic about um, the future and all the things we've talked about, subject to us understanding that our conception of freedom is only what we know at the moment and we don't know the full potential of freedom because the size of the state in our lifetimes has only ever been growing. We have only ever got used to fighting back against the state and very seldom advancing freedom. And when we reconceive of freedom and actually start to imagine the potential to be truly free, then we will be able to have an even better discussion. The, the thing I would leave us with is that this is um, an entrepreneurial question. Um, we often think of the free market movement in the f in, in using the intellectual frameworks of sort of the Cold War, you know, the, the standard left-right um, uh, notions of freedom and the topics and the, the areas that we, we had to argue about and we had to study. What I want everybody to be thinking about is what are the public policy challenges that we're going to be discussing in next year or in 10 years? Are we going to be talking about AI, safety, how should we regulate or not regulate automation, how should we regulate or not regulate a totally new monetary sphere in the case of cryptocurrencies. But also, not just that, to point out that we are actually making this right now, and, and not we on the stage, but everyone in the room are now using encrypted applications. Um, if you're using WhatsApp, you're using an end-to-end -end encryption application that the government really struggles to, to see into. Uh, to adopt these technologies is to help 
make those choices about how free we are going to be in 2050. And I'd encourage you, when you're going about your daily lives, to think about how you can engage yourself in that world, if you can help develop these technologies, help develop these businesses. I, I, I think that's, that's what we have to be focusing on right now. Yeah, I'm going to say that I'm very, very positive about the future and I think it was Ronald Reagan who said that in the future it's not going to be about left and right anymore, it's going to be about up and down, so up towards liberty and innovation and that's the direction that I see us moving into the future. I don't, I'm not, you know, delusional, I don't think there's going to be some bumps in the road, but I think these technologies that Chris has been talking about are going to continuously highlight the mediocrity of government and bureaucracy and the services they provide us. When technology can provide us with so much cheaper, easier to access services, I think everyone is going to begin to notice how outdated the state is and how outdated um, the laws that affect our lives are. And I think there will be a pushback and a move towards freedom of the individual. I have some thank yous to do, but how about a round of applause for our wonderful panellists? That was so much better than Q&A. <laughs> so much. And I, I only interrupted you once, I think. I watched Q&A when David Spears moves from insiders to Q&A. Yeah, that, that'll be good. Something to look forward to. Um, for those, as I said, who are not familiar, this has been uh, the Looking Forward podcast. You can learn more about it at ipa.org.au forward slash podcast where you'll also learn about the Young IPA podcast with James and Pete and indeed uh, in the archive there is a wonderful series, uh, John Roskam and Andrew Bolt on uh, the great books of Western civilization, which are, is it 10, 10 episodes? Uh, definitely commend to you as well. Um, so as well as our panellists, big thank yous to the organisers, uh, to Tim, from Tim Andrews down uh, to Kat and the others who've been so helpful in putting this together, uh, to James Bolt, to Boston and to Chris, uh, helping behind the scenes, uh, to Alyssa, David Barkley, Bridget, Dan and all the other people who provided such great questions from the floor. Thank you. So remember this is only... Uh, possible from the IPA's perspective because of the support of our 5,000 members and, and all the wonderful support that they and our many friends across Australia provide. So if you'd like to know more about membership, go to our website or talk to Boston uh, out uh, in the room adjacent um, and you'll find us there too. We're happy to uh, walk you through that. Um, and thank you so much for listening. We'll be back with our regular Looking Forward podcast very soon.